morning, we're so happy to have Kyle Beckrick with us once again this morning to share from God's Word. Kyle has been with us before. He's one of the missions that we support down in uh, Indiana, and um, we're going to welcome him to the, to the pulpit this morning to share from God's Word. Let's give Kyle, let's give him a standing ovation. Wow. I mean, living out the vision statement with the standing ovation, you're, you're living it out by, by a caring right there. That was more than I needed, and I was, you know, a little, I'm a little uncomfortable right now. I don't, I don't know how to respond to a standing ovation. My wife would have been really uncomfortable. She's like, do I stand for this too, or do I sit down? I don't want to give him too much confidence right now. Um, I can say those things when she's not here, but speaking, I, I'll start with the story. I was telling Paul this before, and he's like, are you going to share that? I'm like, no, I'm not going to, but now I'm going to. So Jen and I just entered into one of the most challenging seasons as new parents, and that is called We Just Got a Dog. And I've been reluctant to hop on the dog bandwagon for a long time because we own a house and I like I don't really I have two kids like I don't want to take care of a dog that to me has less value than my children but requires almost an equal amount of time. I don't, that's you know my rationale at least with it. I don't want to destroy my house. But anyway, I told Jen you know when you finish school she's getting her master's degree and if you can find the perfect dog, we can do it. And so my wife checks the and it's got to be on a and per, part of the perfect dog umbrella is. It's got to be incredibly inexpensive or free. And, you know, people love different things, and I can't justify dropping $1,000 on a dog. But no shame if you, if you do. That's, it's up to you. No shame. So my wife checks the Humane Society's website, like Zillow. Like, she's, like, when we're looking for new houses, she's on there all the time, and she checks the Humane Society almost every day. And a couple weeks ago, she sees a one-year-old Bernadoodle. And so a Bernadoodle is a half Bernese mountain dog, half poodle. So gigantic dog, hypoallergenic, it's house trained, it's good with kids. And so she goes in and looks at it immediately. I literally felt like we were going to buy a house. Like we had to get there right away, like put an offer on it right away. And so my wife spends like three hours with the dog and she's like, you know, come over, bring Cora, take a look at it. And so I'm like, okay. And I go over and the dog's amazing humongous, but kind and sweet. And so I'm like, okay, let's do it. So we get the dog. And when I go to pick it up, they say one thing. When you get a dog from the Humane Society, it has to be neutered. And like, you know, we had some complications with it. Had to give him this additional incision over his belly. Don't give him a bath for two weeks. But there was one problem. The dog was filthy. Not groomed, muddy. And so I thought to myself, what's the worst that could happen if I give him a bath? And so I take him to a groomer. I'm like, hey, you know, the, you know, the Humane Society said this, so just be careful down there. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. So spent a lot of money to get my dog groomed, more than I expected. This was not in the paperwork for dog ownership. And the next day, the dog starts bleeding all over the floor. 
and not like gushing blood, but you know, you know, droplets of blood splattered throughout the house, and they're swelling down there on his belly, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Am I going to kill this new dog? And so I, t- I break the news to my wife, like ultimate humility move, like, yeah, he's not just doing this out of nowhere, like I did this, like it was my fault. And so I have to take him to like the vet hospital and, you know, spent all of, all, it's, you know, it's so ironic because we spent all this money on me not taking care of the dog, like five times more than it actually took to buy the dog. But correlated with Thanksgiving is I had to stay back in Evansville with my son while we took care of my dog, while Jen got to celebrate Thanksgiving with her family. So, you know, happy Thanksgiving. You know, we're excited for Christmas season. So thanks for, thanks for listening to my amazing dog story. I feel like there's always something that comes up. But if you're new here, you're like, who's this random guy telling dog stories? Uh, my name's Kyle Beckrick. I'm one of the missionaries here at Hope Church. I, I probably preach here three or four times a year. And yeah, just really thankful for being here at this church. Thankful for what you guys do, partnering with our ministry, praying for my family, all of those things. I really enjoy being here with you. And I especially get to enjoy being here with you as we enter into Advent season. Advent season is amazing. And, it, and it's so amazing that we get to look forward to something. And Christmas season has always been that, right? If you're, if you're a parent and, you know, you're explaining, you know, in, in a Christian sense, there's, there's a lot of hope that comes with the Advent season. But even as a kid in a non-Christian family, I remember just being so excited about Christmas. Just the season, the lights, the presents, the family, the food. There's something so special about it. When I became a Christian, there was a heightened sense of something to be excited about that there was something coming, someone coming, that someone being Jesus. And if you don't know what Advent means, Advent simply means the arrival of someone or something notable. So if you've ever wondered what Advent means, the, the root word comes from where we get adventure, the arrival, the coming of something. And so this morning, we're going to start a series in Advent called The Gifts of Christmas, where we're going to look at four major themes of the Advent season. Hope, joy, love, and peace. And so this morning, we're going to start off with hope. And uh, before, we, before we enter in, let's pray and just ask God to, to be with us and, and help us as we open up his word this morning. Lord God, um, we come to you this morning. God, as a church family, thankful Uh, for the coming of Christ. God, thankful that you did not leave us here empty-handed in our sin, but God, you sent a Savior on our behalf um, to rescue us. So I just pray for for us as a church, God, as the Advent season approaches, God, that you would give us hope, that you would give us love and peace and joy, and we know that that can only be done, God, through your Spirit, and God, just pray that that would be evident uh, through this church and in this community. God, that they would see the love of Christ, the hope that we have in this Advent season. Pray that that would be true today. God, help us as we, as we study your word this morning and be with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So my first year on staff with Campus Outreach, I moved from Indianapolis, where I did my undergrad, to Evansville. And I don't know if you've ever moved to a new city before, but there's a lot of change that comes. And so I was entering into that season newly married, in a new city, in a new 
uh, church environment, starting a new job on a new campus. All of these things were new. And I knew one of the things early on during my time was this was going to be a hard adjustment for me. I was an only child, and I'm moving in with someone else, and there's a lot of things going on, trying to pioneer this ministry on a new campus, reaching non-believers at USI, and I'm trying to balance all of these things. And one of my friends in Indianapolis said, whatever you do, you just need to find a mentor in Evansville. You need to find an older man who can relate with you and give you advice and counsel and kind of and enter into the things that you're going through. And I thought, okay, like, do those guys grow on trees? Like, is there like a, an ad somewhere where I can find mentor, like mentors for Christian missionaries in Evansville? And no, that doesn't exist. And so I am literally praying, like, God, could you send someone here? Like, let me cross paths with someone that I can uh, start this sort of mentor-mentee relationship with that can help just a young guy trying to figure out life in Evansville. And what I thought was happenstance, I, I, I got a dinner invitation, our, our entire staff team got a dinner invitation in Evansville to a business owner's house. And this business owner was a former Campus Outreach staff member in the early 2000s. And we go over to his house for dinner. And early on, he's you know telling his story about how he was uh, a college student at Murray State in Kentucky. And he said while he was at Murray State, he became a Christian. And he had a vision to reach other lost college students with the gospel as a student at Murray State. So he thought the best way for him to build friendships with non-believers at Murray State was to rush a fraternity. So this guy rushed a fraternity at Murray State, and he was committed to sharing the gospel with every fraternity brother there. And one of those guys was the fraternity president. And he shared the gospel with the fraternity president. And by God's grace, the fraternity president, I mean, this would have had to have been the late 90s, became a Christian. And he started to disciple this fraternity president at Murray State, started to grow in his faith, and, and also had a passion to share the gospel with college students. And he graduated from Murray State and decided to come on staff with Campus Outreach and moved to Indianapolis. And he moved to Indianapolis to pioneer a Campus Outreach in the early 2000s at IEPUI. And within a few years' time, he'd shared the gospel with a guy named Seth. And Seth became a Christian, also had that desire to share his faith. And Seth's senior year, he met a student, shared the gospel with him, and that student became a Christian. And that was me. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Like, I'm with, like, my spiritual great-grandfather. Like, because of this guy's faithfulness, 20 years ago, at Murray State, sharing the gospel with a fraternity president, this guy became a Christian who also had that same desire, who became a Christian. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, we have like this natural connection, former staff guy, has four kids. And so we developed this, I mean, amazing relationship where this guy was able to, to mentor me and really help me in a lot of areas. Um, but three years later, my third year on staff at Campus Arch, he calls me and he says, Kyle, I just want to know, want you to know there's this accident today. I was at the gym, and something happened, went to the hospital, and I've been diagnosed with glioblastoma stage 4 brain cancer, and I've been given a year to live. And I mean just earth-shattering news, right? Earth-shattering news for him, his family, for me. And by God's grace, he's, he's still alive today, and over those, the last, I mean, how long would that be now? Four, it's been four years now, I mean, amazing. Over the last four years, 
I saw this man's life face to face in the midst of insane adversity transformed. The way that he spent his time, the way that he was generous with his finances and his life, the way that he invested in his family and his business, shared the gospel faithfully, even with his surgeons and doctors. I saw immense hope in his life. Recently, he, he was told that he, he's going to pass away before this Christmas. And so I got to spend last week with him for a few hours. He told me how proud, of it, how proud of me he was. It's so hard not to get emotional. We named our son after him. Just lo- love him so much. But one, one of the reasons why we named our son after him was when I think about life, I think about adversity. I think about hardship. I think about how times are going to get tough for all of us. And the way that we as Christians are called to handle these situations is with hope. And so this morning, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about how we as Christians can have hope. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Hebrews chapter 4. And if you don't have one on your phone or with you, I'm I'm going to read it. I may or may not have uh, sent this email to Dawn until last night, so it is my fault that there's no slide. Um, But I will read it, and I will try to read it loud for emphasis. Uh, So this is Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest. Who has, passed down, who has passed through the heavens, the Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. To hope means to expect or desire a certain outcome. And while we as Christians are to hope, not just in Jesus' arrival like we do in Advent, and not just in the second coming of Jesus, that, that is the call of the Christian is to hope for the return of Jesus. The issue is, is that if you were to look around today, there are soaring numbers of people, just in our country alone, that are struggling with anxiety, and depression, and doubts at an all-time high. Even in the church, if you've, if you've talked with other people more than just casually about the weather or food, you will know that there are a lot of people struggling. And I think that conversation uh, is an important one to have, and, and I think the solution, though, is rather simple. And I think this is the solution to that issue, is that the issue is not that we don't have hope. The issue is that we have misplaced hope. The issue isn't that we don't have hope, but it's that our hope is misplaced, that we are hoping for the wrong things. And and let me explain. So often in the day-to-day life, we live for the here and now. Even we as Christians, even those who are out of college, those who, who have kids and who are older, live for the here and now. We put our trust in things like our finances to be our comfort. If we just can pay the bills, if we can just have this or that, if the paycheck is steady, then I'll be safe. We think if my family is just well put together, if we look good, if we, you know, if we have the right social status, then we'll be good. 
or we, or we think, if I can just attain this promotion or this significance in my job, if I can just rise to this level, I'll be good. Or, or even with our health, we think, if I can just stay healthy, if I can just stay alive, that's all I need is to stay alive. But what's the issue with all of those things? Every single one of them is going to come to an end. Your job, it's crazy to think. One and many, some of you are retired, but for many of us who are starting careers and things like that, there's one day where your career will end, where you will no longer receive a steady paycheck. There is one day where your health will start deteriorating. There's one day where your life here on this earth will end. So, is your hope placed primarily in something that will one day come to an end or something that is going to last for an eternity? And this passage, I think, does a great job of giving us three reasons why we should have our hope placed in Jesus rather than here on this earth. So I want to give three main points, simply this. We should have hope in what Christ has done for us, what he is doing in us now, and for what is to come. So hope in the past, hope in the present, and hope in the future. So if you look at the beginning of verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, you, and you hear that and you're like, what is a great high priest? I think I read that somewhere in the Old Testament, but I'm not really sure what, when I see the word priest, like aren't there pastors, like what, what, what is up with this language? And, and this is what it means. If, if you've read through the Old Testament, you'll see a, a title of a person called the high priest. And the high priest had a very important role for God's people. And it was that each year, there's the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice on behalf of all of God's people. And he would enter into what was called the Holy of Holies in the temple, where God's presence was manifest. And there in the Holy of Holies, one day a year, the great high priest would make a sacrifice for all of his people. And this sacrifice would happen once a year, year in, year out, to pay for the sins of God's people. And Jesus is called the great high priest for two reasons. Probably more, but at least in this context too. And the first is this. Jesus makes a once and for all sacrifice for God's people. There, there's a reason why I didn't carry a lamb up here with me this morning to make a sacrifice for you. And the reason is because Jesus' sacrifice 2,000 years ago was sufficient for us today. When Jesus went to the cross and died, he died for our sins, past, present, and future. But not just that, when Jesus died, was resurrected, and then ascended into heaven, he is now seated at the right hand of God. The most holy of places in heaven at God's right hand. So the great high priest would enter into the, the temporary holy of holies in the temple, would, would make a temporary sacrifice. Jesus made the once and for all sacrifice and is currently seated at God's right hand. So when you see Jesus is the high priest, that, that is what that means. But when we think about looking back at the past, I think one way of thinking this is so helpful. There's certain people you call in certain situations, right? I'm not a car guy, and when I have car problems, I call Joel. You don't know Joel. You'll never meet Joel, but Joel is my car guy. He's a buddy of mine, and whenever I have an issue with something, I call Joel, he comes over, and he usually fixes it. 
and I have a plumber guy. I don't know how to fix toilets, sinks. Some of you guys are, are really talented. I'm not at things like this. So if I have an issue with my toilet, I call the plumber guy. And if I have an issue with my dog, I call the vet. And I think so often, we as people look back and call people based on a few things. Why do I call Joel? One, because I know Joel has this knowledge about cars that I don't have. He has experience working with vehicles. And second, he's reliable, and he's my friend. When I call him, he shows up. And so there is this past experience that I have and knowledge of Joel that comes in to impact me in the present day. And the same is true with our faith. We look back at Jesus, and we see what he has accomplished for us. We look at the sinless life of Jesus, we look at his sacrifice, and we say, man, it is amazing what God has done for us on our behalf. We are able to look back and see that Jesus is reliable. And sometimes using casual words like that doesn't do it justice, and it's not supposed to. But the purpose is that we can look at what Jesus has done for us on our behalf and know that he has came through for us because of his sacrifice. And so I would just say, during the Advent season, do you look back? Do you look back with confidence and see what Jesus has done for you on your behalf? During the Advent season, do you have hope because of what was accomplished for you 2,000 years ago? The beginning of hope starts with what has already been accomplished. Not yet on what's to come, not what's happening today or tomorrow, but what happened 2,000 years ago. That is what we're celebrating during Advent. And so do you look back? When you're struggling, when you're uh, in a time of need, do you look back with confidence on what Jesus has done for you on your behalf? And so maybe even an Advent application would be this. One night a week or every night during dinner, read a chapter of one of the Gospels as a family and look back on what Jesus has done for you. Start in Mark, it's the shortest of the Gospels, and just read one chapter every night and look back and see what Jesus has done for you and reflect because, what, because of what Christ has done, we're able to have hope. But we don't just look back, we look at the present and see what Christ is currently doing in us. I would say I, I talk with non-believing and believing college students every day, and I would say one of the biggest struggles people have in even being a Christian but converting to Christianity would be they don't know that God is present with them, or they, they don't believe that Jesus really wants to be a part of their life. They think God is this ethereal, far-out person that sometimes comes through but is not going to be there for them. They think God is distant and unavailable and unable to enter into our daily lives. But I think God's word says much differently when we look at this passage about how God enters into our lives as Christians. So the passage goes on and says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So the high priest didn't just pay our debt to bridge the gap between us and God. Yes, primarily that is the message of the gospel, that Jesus came, died for our sins so that we could enter into a relationship with God, but he also enters into our present day lives and sympathizes with our weaknesses. That is so profound. 
almost impossible to explain. That each of us have weaknesses. We have struggles. Things are hard for us as people. But Jesus enters into those and sympathizes with us. Because he cares, because he loves us. And something that can be really frustrating for all of us is when you get advice from someone who has no relevant experience to what you're going through. You know what I mean? Do you have, do you have one of those situations where, I don't know, uh, here, here's a good one. Have you ever been to, and you're, you may be this parent, so no shame, but you've been to like a football game and you're sitting, you're watching you know, a high school football game or a professional game or you know, fill in the blank and you hear someone screaming like, run the ball, or stop passing the ball, or, you know, like yelling this, like, instruction for the coach. And this person is like a 30-year-old campus minister, like, and he's trying to give a professional football coach who makes millions of dollars advice on how to, how to play the game of football. Or if you're a teacher, and, you, you know, you have a master's degree in education, you've been teaching kids for your whole life, and someone is constantly telling you how you need to improve as a teacher. And you're like, I really appreciate your sincerity. I really appreciate your kindness and thoughtfulness. But you have no idea what you're talking about. And, you know, that, that happens time to time. That's, you know, me speaking frankly. But the reality is, is we want people who can understand. And we want people who can enter in. And even with me and this mentor, I wanted someone who had relevant college ministry experience. Who could talk about, you know, what's going on in my life and my struggles with my specific job. And I knew he had been through what I had been through before. And he could come in and help me with that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a a great Christian writer, wrote this in regard to this passage. I think it's amazingly helpful uh, in regard to temptation and, and, and sympathy. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation knows how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it. He wrote this during World War II. Not by giving in. So you find out the strength of the German army not by fighting against it, or by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows how to full what temptation, to fulfill what temptation means, the only complete realist. So C.S. Lewis, in, in a lengthy quote, says this. You only know temptation if you actually fight against it. You, you don't know temptation if you just constantly are giving in, giving in. But he even goes on to say, he compares five minutes to, to one hour, so in the same sense, he, you could say, you don't know temptation if you've been fighting it for one year versus if you've been fighting it for 25 years. This is the scale he's trying to present because the only way or the only person who can truly understand temptation like we're seeing in this verse or can understand what we're going through is Jesus who perfectly embodied a sinless person. So someone had stated this earlier, but Jesus was, yes, fully God and fully man or as R.C. Sproul says, truly God and truly man. 
is that he actually lived. He actually had feelings. He had a conscience and made decisions. And why that is so important is when we get to passages like this in the Bible, when we hear fancy theological phrases like the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, what it means is this, is that you and I are sinful people. You and I have struggles and doubts, and we make mistakes. We sometimes uh, disappoint or frustrate our spouses or our kids. Fill in the blank. But Jesus went through all of those things. All those things, disappointment, doubt, fill in the blank, but did it without sin. And as a result of that, when you go to him as a Christian, he's able to enter into your life. And that is an amazing promise for us who are struggling with sickness and disease and doubt and anxiety and frustration, is that if you are a Christian, you can go to Jesus today and he will shape you and transform you because he knows you and he loves you. That is an amazing promise. He is not an absent father. He's not an absent savior. He's not a person who's going to leave you because you're screwed up. He's a person who came to you because you were screwed up, and he loves you the same. It's an amazing promise. The reason that we can have hope today is not just because what was done for you 2,000 years ago, but because of what happened 2,000 years ago, Jesus is still present in our lives, and he still loves you. And if Jesus has made you his, he sees you as beautiful. He sees you as whole, despite what you're going through. Despite your sin, despite your shame, if you've trusted in Christ, he sees you as whole. And that is why you can have hope. This is why you can have hope. He then says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And I've already hit on most of this, but I would just say, let's emphasize that word confidence. So hard to have confidence when, when we're up with someone as mighty as God, right? Like, I mean, let's just be honest. It's like we are approaching the God of the universe. And whenever we're around someone who is you know, intimidating, we think, man, can I really talk to them? Can I really tell them what's going on? And the reason that we're able to enter into this with confidence is because of what Christ has done for us. This is not just a, you know, if you want to approach with confidence, but demand it. If you are a Christian, approach the throne with confidence because of what Jesus has done for you, because of what he's doing in your life. Is this true for you? Do you approach the throne with confidence today? Do you pray with confidence? Do you trust God with confidence? So because of what Christ has done, we're able to have hope. And because of what Christ is doing, we're able to have hope. But finally, we're able to have hope because of what is to come. And I think this is why I've admired my friend so much in his last days here on earth is because of what is to come. And as we age, many of the believers that I know are not just begrudgingly approaching death, but are excited. And that is, I'm not sure where you are, maybe just if you're, 15 years old up to 80 years old, I'm not sure where you are on the spectrum of awaiting death. And, and that can be such an uncomfortable thing to talk about. But the reality for all of us is that day is coming. 
and it is not something that's not talked about in the scriptures. It's talked frequently. Death, judgment, approaching the throne, those words are our view of the end times is ever present in scripture. And I would say this, this is so amazing. Even though talking about death is uncomfortable in our culture, I would just say this. We are able to have hope because of what is to come. We're able to have hope because of what awaits us. And again, maybe, maybe that's easy for me to say at 29 years old, seemingly healthy. Again, we have no idea when, when our last day on earth will be. But when we look at the scriptures, we see what Jesus has done, what he's doing, but ultimately it's, it's for one reason. Restoration. When we look at the timeline of scripture, we see how God created the earth. Perfect. There's nothing bad. There's no sin. And the reason that God sent Jesus was ultimately for restoration, for his creation to be restored. And right now, we are people who are deteriorating physically, right? This is what we see in 1 Corinthians. Paul refers to this a lot, that the outer self is passing away, but the inner self is being renewed day by day. Because one day, when we see God face to face, we will be wholly made fully new. I don't know if you've ever wanted to get through a hard season before. Uh, Jen and I have been in one for the last two years, and she's, she's been in a, an ex, what's the word? So it's not full-time, but it's like the thing above full-time, like um, an expedited program, graduate school program. So typically it's a three-year program. She's doing it in two. I don't know. Maybe the word's called crazy. That's what we are. Uh, but we're like, you know, let's just get it done and you know, we're done now. But for the last two years, we've been like, this is miserable. Like, we're paying for Jen to go to work as, a, you know, she has to go to clinicals. We pay for that. She's studying at night a long two years. In this past Monday, Jen came home, and she's done. Super brilliant, super smart, way more impressive than me. And just the sigh of relief that we had just as she walked. She was a different person. It was crazy. She, got to, she walked in the door, didn't have to go back to clinicals, didn't have to study that night, just breathed a sigh of relief. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And probably many of us have gone through something similar to that. But guess what? We get a dog. The dog bleeds on the floor. <laughs> An, another, another problem enters in. And, and the sigh of relief was so temporary, right? It was, so, it, it was amazing while it lasted, but it lasted for less than 24 hours before the next thing came up. And this is what is so beautiful about eternity, is that sigh of relief never ends. That sigh of relief never ends. And here on earth, we, we get to experience little bits of that. By God's grace, we get to experience just a little bit of what eternity will be like. But when that day comes, that sigh of relief will be everlasting. And so we can have hope because this world is not all there is. Ultimately, in the Advent season, Our hope is placed in something that is everlasting. Our hope is placed in something that's not going to cease. Our hope is placed in something that's not going to disappoint us. Our hope is placed in the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago when we get to see him face to face. So I'll just end with this. What are you investing your life in? Where, Where is your hope placed? I'll tell you this, none of us have a perfectly placed hope, me included. There are times where I I put my hope in 
present circumstances all the time. And God's calling me to turn from that and to put my hope in Jesus. And as a result of me putting my hope in Jesus, it's going to bless everyone else around me. It's going to bless my family, my ministry, my friends, my church. And so I need to weed out those areas that are stealing my hope away from Christ and being placed somewhere else. And so what is that for you? What are the areas that you're putting your hope in? I'm going to just set the ball in the tee for you to have uncomfortable conversations on your drive home. But where would you say you are putting your hope in right now? What, what are the things that are temporary that, that are stealing that hope where you during this Advent season can make concerted effort to transform that hope and place it into the coming of Christ? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we're so thankful this morning to be able to, uh, by your grace, put our hope in something, in someone that is everlasting. God, just pray for us as a church, God, that any idol and anything that is stealing our hope or our love or our peace or our joy, God, that you would give us the grace and the wisdom to turn from that and to place that hope into Christ. Um, just pray for this Advent season, God, that our hearts and our minds would be focused on Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.